but her mother's the reason why she started taking lessons and uh, uh, as well as uh, some of the other kids and uh, so thank God for not only preachers' wives but those wives that uh, put the needs of their children ahead of their own. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of James chapter number 4. I want to speak to you again today about one of those words that, uh, well, it used to be common, but we seldom ever hear that word used today. Uh, perhaps you will remember uh, last week or the week before I preached about the subject of holiness, and nobody talks about holiness anymore. Nobody preaches about holiness anymore. Well, today we're going to look at the flip side of the coin, and I want to speak to you about the subject of worldliness. Worldliness. That's, uh, that used to be common. People talk about uh, people being worldly and churches being worldly. And uh, today, uh, nobody has anything to say about it. And when they do, when they do, it is so discouraging that... Uh, uh, in the case of some, they just quit the ministry or drop out of church because uh, everything's discouraging to them. And uh, like Arthur Pink, a brilliant writer and and preacher, preached several, pastored several churches, and uh, as most of you know, wrote the book Glennings in Genesis and several other commentaries that. I wouldn't agree with everything he said, but he got so distraught over the worldliness of the churches in his day. He died, I think, in 1952. But he got so distraught over the worldliness in the churches that he and his wife just lived on an island in seclusion for the last 16 years of his life. How sad it is that someone would just give up and throw in the towel because of the condition that the world is in. That tells me the world needs what we've got more than ever. So this is no reason to despair. But maybe, uh, maybe we ought to talk just a moment about what, what are we talking about when we talk about worldliness. So I'll give you a, a real quick, short definition. It's the opposite of holiness it's the opposite of holiness you could say it is actually a form of idolatry and the problem is that so many Christians today think oh, they couldn't have anything to do with me you know I'm saved I'm on my way to heaven I'm in church every week couldn't have anything to do with me but that just might be where you're wrong it could have something to do with you and me and our text today deals with this matter of worldliness. Now, last week we talked about that word world and tried to describe what it was like. It's this evil world system. It's a unified system, evil system, under the control of Satan. It's unpleasing to God. He tells us to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. It's something that could never possibly satisfy man. Solomon taught us that lesson. It's something that is unchangeable by the saints of God. Try as we may, we'll never change this world system that we live in. But what I want you to notice, it is unbecoming 
of God's people. Remember the Lord said in His prayer in John chapter 17, He prayed to the Father to not take His people out of this world, but to leave them here. In other words, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're not a part of that worldly system. So here in James chapter number 4, we see also the three enemies that we face. It's easy to pick them out, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as Christians, we're different from the world in, in the sense that we belong to a different family. Aren't you glad? Thank God for that. We belong to a different kingdom. And I want you to notice what uh, James writes beginning in verse number 1. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of this world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Quite often I've referred to the fact that numerous polls and surveys tell us, and this is by the admission of professing Christians. And in the survey that's taken is regarding their lifestyle, we live in a day and age where there is almost absolutely no difference between how people live, whether they're members of a church or whether they're not church members. It's changed so much. Sometimes I feel like I'm living in the wrong generation, but I'm not. What I need to remember is I'm living in a different generation. This is the generation God intended for me to live in or I wouldn't be here. So it's not the wrong generation, but it is a different generation. And we need to understand that. Those of you that are somewhere around my age, you look back and remember how it was as a kid and, and the difference in the moral standards and so forth. And you wonder, what in the world happened to, to this world? What happened? And, of course, the young people, a lot of them, they wonder why, why I keep preaching about uh, the condition of the church and the condition of the world because they, you know, that's all they've ever known. They've grown up in church and they, they, they don't know anything about what, how it used to be. They don't know anything about all-night singings and all-day prayer meetings and brush arbors and things like that, cottage prayer meetings. And we, we talk about revival today, but for the most part, they'd, they'd have to say we've never seen anything like that. We look back at the way that the church used to be back when I started preaching at the moral standards that most churches, at least they realize that these are the standards that we ought to be living by and nowadays, that's all gone by the wayside. Uh, nobody preaches about it. They don't preach about it because nobody likes to hear that kind of preaching. And that's why we're where we are today. Now, notice in verse 4, I want you to notice something, that there's a question here. He says, Know ye not 
that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Questions are used to get our attention. Questions are used to make us think. And so that tells me that what James is saying, that this is something that every Christian should already know. Know ye not? Do you not understand this? That's the, that's the point. He's writing about something that they should already know, and sadly, based on their behavior, some of them had not learned the lesson that this is the way that it ought to be. When we're in opposition to God, we're not in a very good, safe position to be in. It can have terrible effects on a person's life. It ruins our witness for one thing. That's why so many people, you know, say, I don't want to go to church. I'm just a bunch of hypocrites down there. I don't want anything to do with that. It ruins our witness. Whenever your classmates, whenever your co-workers, when your family members, your neighbors... When they see that there's no difference between you and anybody else. They don't see anything there that they desire. They think they're just as well off as, uh, as you are. You can talk about going to heaven all you want. But, uh, you know, their answer would be, well, you know, I'm just as good a person as you are. If you're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. And so that's the mindset of so many people today. It hinders the cause of Christ whenever you and I as professing Christians live like the world. Now I know, especially on a Sunday like this, and we so deeply appreciate uh, your kindness shown today, your appreciation and the gifts and we appreciate that. And then I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to pre- be preaching on the subject of worldliness. The good thing about that is, I'm not preaching on this subject as I would have 56 years ago. I'm not preaching on this subject as others did with glee many years ago. Back when I started, the picture of a, a Baptist preacher was a rugged, two-fisted fundamentalist that's fighting, fighting sin of every kind. And Bev used to worry that I was going to have a stroke. I, the veins would pop out on my head and, and neck, and my face would turn red. And uh, I, when I first started preaching, I'd go home and literally couldn't hardly open and close my hands from pounding on the pulpit running around like a Comanche and 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 that was my picture and by the way that's that's the kind of preaching everybody liked I I I, I couldn't I, I could have stayed busy all the time just preaching revival meetings uh, that, that's what people like but somebody had to condemn sin Somebody had to get out there and fight that fight. We've all over the years, and I've often mentioned the fact, I mentioned it to our Timothy team probably several times, one of the, maybe the most important lesson I ever learned as a preacher. 
was where Paul said, speaking the truth in love. You know, I can say anything that I need to say. I can say anything that needs to be said. Now listen, it might be blunt. I might pound on the pulpit. I can't run around anymore. I can't lift my arms above my shoulders. But I don't apologize for that because that's a part of communicating with people. But I can honestly say that when I do, whatever the sin, whatever the issue, whatever the subject, by the grace of God, I'm saying it with love. And maybe you're sitting and you're thinking, well, why are you even preaching a message about worldliness? After all, we got the best church in the county. I mean, nothing worldly about us. Wait, I'm not through preaching yet. I don't know about you, but there's too much worldly about me. I've discovered that. So what are the characteristics of of worldliness? What are we looking for? How do we we decide there? Some folks, you know, they they get this all confused. They think, well, if if you're going to really be super spiritual, a holy person, and not worldly, women will have to wear a dress that drags the ground, not any makeup put their hair up in one of them big old buns, you know, like they used to. And, and you got you to live like that, you know. That's what holiness is. No, that's nothing to do with it. And I'm not making fun of people that do that, by the way. I respect their views on modesty. So I'm not making fun of them. But if that's your concept of being holy, you've totally missed the mark. Amen. There's more to it than that. So what, what is worldliness? Well, there's three things here in this chapter that make it very clear what we're talking about. The first one, notice verse number one, and the word lust. Not lust, but lust, the plural. And so the first characteristic is selfish ambition. From whence come wars and fightings among you? That's the question mark. Come they not hence even... Of your lust that war in your members. Now, whenever he closed chapter number three, if you just look back there, you'll notice that the subject there is is peace. He's speaking about peace, and now all of a sudden he's speaking about war. And notice he's not asking them if they have any conflicts because he knew that there would be if there wasn't. And there's not a church anywhere that doesn't have conflict sooner or later at some time or another. And as much as we'd like to think, well, boy, it'll never happen here, regardless of what we think and regardless of how hard we try to be peacemakers, mark it down, there are going to be times when somebody's going to find something wrong with something and there's going to be conflict among God's people. Families are that way. Churches are that way. And the question is, why must it be? Well, notice that word lust. Conflicts are created by man's desires. And that's the desire you know to pursue. It might be pleasures. It might be possessions. It might be power. It might be popularity. Whatever it is. 
In chapter 3, he talks in verse 14 about worldly wisdom producing. Now, notice the list of things he mentions. This is the wisdom of the world. And he says it produces bitter envy and strife, confusion, every evil work. You see, that's the attitude that strives to please self. That's the lust. That's the evil, unlawful desires. And, and, and you're foolish to think that could never happen to you or that you never have any desires like that. George Sweeting wrote many years ago, he said, It's often shocking to witness just how fast people can go to pieces. In a moment of lust, a teenager turns into a thief. Overcome by greed, a respected businessman becomes an embezzler. In a senseless search for excitement, a man or a woman sacrifices a good reputation and becomes involved in sexual immorality. And boy, is that ever true. All the times over these years that there's been someone and you think to yourself, they've really got it all together. You don't need to worry about them. They're solid as a rock. They're going to stand for the truth. And the next thing you know, without any warning, they fall. Now, you see, what Sweeting was talking about there in regards to what lust does, that's natural, that's normal for the world, but for the child of God, it shouldn't be normal. It shouldn't be tolerated. Our desires ought to be occupied in in the effort to please God instead of trying to please self. And if we're really honest, all too often we're troubled by things that you know that normally wouldn't bother us, normally wouldn't tempt us. And then sooner or later, right time, right person, right place, somebody falls. This is all the work of what the Bible speaks of as the flesh. And, and whenever he uses the word flesh, it, it's not speaking so much about the skin that covers your bones as it is the vestiges of your old nature. Every person is born into this world with a sinful nature. You don't have to teach somebody to sin. They're going to do it. As a result of Adam's fall, we all have a sinful nature. But thank God when we receive Christ as our Savior, we have a new nature. But we still have the vestiges, that is the leftovers, so to speak, of that old nature that's there. Otherwise, we'd be perfect, right? If we just had the new nature, we wouldn't do anything except please God. But there's this struggle going on between the flesh and the spirit. And every Christian knows exactly what I'm talking about. And whenever we think about a characteristic of worldliness, we have to start by talking about it's a selfish ambition. It's that desire in our heart. But notice in verse number 2, the next word that tells us a different characteristic, and that's sinful action. Verse 2, he says, "Ye lust and you have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and ye receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Here we see James using the analogy of a 
warfare, a literal warfare where people are literally killing themselves. And he is likening that unto what is going on among God's people here. And this is contention that's due to the selfish ambition that creates a conflict. And he refers to that conflict as being war. It wasn't anything new because if you, if you read Paul's writings to the church at Corinth, man, they really had a problem with it. They were fussing and fighting over something all of the time, it seemed like. You think, well, that's probably the only church like that. No. You look over at the Galatians and you find the believers there all messed up about some issues. You look at the church of Ephesus. Same thing. He talks about our differences and the desires and the divisions within the church. There in Philippi, evidently a couple of the women had it out for each other and they were fussing and they were fighting. But if there's any word that characterizes the world that we live in, it's the word war. Several years ago, there was a fellow that was an expert at statistics and what have you, and he calculated in the 5,560 years of recorded history, I'm emphasizing recorded history here, because earth's been around longer than 5,000 years. We know that from what the Bible teaches. He said there's been 14,531 wars. That's an average of two, a little over 2.6 wars every year. Now, I don't know exactly how he defined the word wars, whether, you know, whether it was some little skirmish, it didn't amount to anything or, or not. But when you look back through history, you have to admit to the fact that, that somewhere on planet Earth, there's, there's a war going on. There's blood being shed, lives being lost. But that attitude, that warlike mentality, that fussing, that fighting and what have you, that is produced by old sinful nature, should never be found in the Lord's church. I have a preacher friend who literally, him and one of the members got into it, and they took it outside and literally had a fist fight just outside the church building. By the way, he's still pastoring churches today, as far as I know. I preached a revival meeting in the Chalk Hill Baptist Church in Camden, Tennessee. And you could still see the blood spots on the floor where two members got in a fight and the knives came out and they started cutting each other. Two church members now. I can remember my pastor calling and saying, Brother Stone, I, I, I've got to have uh, uh, some meetings with certain people. And he said, I want you to come over and just don't say anything. Just sit in there. I just need a bodyguard. I said, what? He said, I need a bodyguard because there have been some threats made against me. And I've got to meet with this person. How sad it is whenever you think about the Lord's church and you have to do so in the context of not only just a covetous spirit, but that bitterness and the hatred and what have you. 
You say, well, yeah, but that doesn't hurt anybody like a bullet. Remember the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Really. It is amazing what a war of words can do. It, it causes people to tattle. It causes them to backbite, to gossip, to slander, to debate, to threaten. And people might be just determined to, you know, to get their own way. Let me tell you something from experience. Most of the church splits, most of the divisions that are in churches are not the result of doctrinal differences. If I got up here and I began to preach that I've changed my mind about whether Jesus was literally virgin born or whether he literally was raised up from the dead, you ought to run me out of here, I mean in a split second. You can't tolerate that kind of doctrinal heresy. But that's not what most issues are about. Over the years, I look back and think about examples I've seen and and, and experiences I've had. Most of the time, it's about personality clashes, difference in personalities. Some churches, it's been some change. You want to make a change on what time or what day you're going to have your midweek service? Or maybe it's a change in the preference to music. Oh, we don't use those old hymn books anymore, you know. We, we're, 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 the kids don't like that kind of stuff. They want a certain kind. And, and in, on the other hand, you've got these folks say, well, that's the, only thing, that's the only thing to use. That's the only kind of scriptural music there is. If you're not singing out of the American hymnal, why, well, you're not right with God. There's all kinds of divisions about that. The war of worship that goes on. Now look at verse 4, and I want to show you the third characteristic. And that's spiritual adultery. Notice he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Here we see James as though, as though, the point hasn't been blunt enough. As though he hadn't been clear enough, he deals with this matter in the most serious way possible, which is spiritual adultery. That is infidelity to God. You see, this concept goes all the way back to the Old Testament where Jehovah is pictured as the husband of Israel. And especially you read in Jeremiah about their unfaithfulness being pictured as adultery. And we come over to the New Testament, and we see basically the same thing in Romans chapter number 7. We learn there that the believer's relationship to God is like a marriage to Christ. And did you ever think about your relationship with the Lord being that serious, like being married to Christ? And over and over again, we see the church pictured as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Now all of that shows us how serious this matter is. You see, our relationship with God is more than that of, of, let's say, a servant with his master. Or a student with his teacher. 
or even a father and a son, or a king and his subjects. The picture here is that which is the most precious possible intimate relationship on this earth, and that's a husband and a wife. And when we are unfaithful to do His will, it's like an act of spiritual adultery against God. By the way, did you know God is jealous? Exodus chapter number 34 tells us He's a jealous God. In fact, the Bible tells us His name is jealous. He's jealous over His people. I don't know anything that that pictures the devil's desire to separate man from God in a more grievous way than this. I believe the most painful experience a person can have is the unfaithfulness of a spouse. And that's what God is using here to describe you and I when we are unfaithful to Him. And keep in mind, James is writing to professing Christians here. And even though a person has been saved and on their way to heaven, there are times that we sin against God, that we're unfaithful to God. And if we would be honest about this, honest with ourselves and honest before God, we'd have to admit, we'd have to admit, I have failed the Lord. I'm not talking about maybe in some real obvious public way. That's not what I mean. Some do. There are some that flaunt their sin in the face of God as though it was nothing. You know, I get sick and tired of people saying to preachers, tell it like it is. And then when you do, they don't like it. They think you're being unkind when in reality... They're trying to save your life. We live in a day where Christianity is so far adrift that it's unrecognizable to a lot of people. You know why this is such a big deal? Because it grieves God. It hurts the heart of God when He sees His children sin. Now what in the world could cause something like this. What in the world would cause a professing Christian to behave like an unsaved person? And so many times that seemingly good people end up doing bad things, but how does it happen? Look at verse 3 again. Now I want you to notice in verse number 3 and then in 4 also, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. So why don't they get what they're longing for? Notice that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? And whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the first thing that we notice, the first cause that's obvious to me is a disrespect for God's Word. In other words, they make their plans without any consideration for what God wants. The happiest people on the face of the earth are those that can honestly say, and they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I'm where God wants me to be. I'm doing what God wants me to do. 
I know that by the grace of God, I'm in the will of God. And then if you look on in verse 15, the second thing that can cause it is they disobey God's will. So that ye ought to say, instead of making your plans without any concern about God's word, this is what you ought to say. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that, but now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. They disobey God's will. They disrespect God's word. If the truth is known, all of us know more than what we actually obey. We know more about what God wants us to do than what we're willing to do. And so that indicates that there's a disregard for God's wisdom. Sometimes we live as though God doesn't know what's really best for us. We got a better idea, you know. I I I I know that the Bible says I ought to do this or that, but you know, and that may be true with most people, but you know, in my case, the circumstances are such that I think it'd be better if I did something else. It just wouldn't work nowadays. That's exactly what happens. And so we take a different route as though we are questioning the wisdom of God. We tell you, God never makes any mistakes. He's never wrong. Whenever God directs us on a certain course, that's where we need to be. Now quickly, I want to show you the cure for this serious problem. Verse 7 down through verse 10, and I'm not going to read it all, but I just want you to notice one by one, I've underlined these words in my Bible. First of all, submit yourselves therefore to God. That word submit is a military term that simply means to get in your proper rank. To get where you ought to be. That's the only way that we can defeat the devil. Submit. Boy, that can be so hard to do. It shouldn't be, but sometimes it is. Submit yourselves, and then he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, in most cases, people resist God and submit to the devil. They've got it just backwards, you see. But he's telling us here that submission is essential, and it's essential to everything else, because until we do this, we can't actually do any more. Until we do this, we're not in a safe place. Submit to God, resist the devil. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. But then he says, and be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Now he's writing to Christian people and giving them a warning Be not conformed. That literally means don't let the world squeeze you in its mold. That's the literal meaning of of that word. Conformed. Be not conformed. Don't let it... Let me tell you, we're under pressure on every side to compromise. There's constantly pressure. The devil sees to that. And he says, resist the devil. 
You submit to God, you resist the devil. Notice the next thing here in verse 8. Draw nigh to God. And here's the best part of this. And He will draw nigh to you. Draw nigh to God. And let me remind you that the only way that we can do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 73 says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. A lot of folks... A lot of folks have just the opposite opinion of that. They think, well, if I get close to God, if I sell out to God, if I do what God wants me to do, it's going to take all the fun out of my life. No, the greatest joy you'll ever have is to know, is to know that your heart is right with God. Draw near to God. Then he says in verse 8, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. James knew that there were several references to this over in the Old Testament, and he also knew that those to whom he is writing here, that they had stained their hands with sin. And every Christian here at some time or another, since the day you trusted Christ as your Savior, you've sinned in some way or another. You see, we keep thinking about it all being a matter of our outward actions. But notice he says, cleanse your hands. But notice what he says, purify your hearts. So here he's speaking about our hands and our heart. That is the outward and the inward, the acts and the attitudes. The acts and the attitudes. Somebody said, well, I would never, I'd never do anything like that. No, you wouldn't commit the act. But it's in your heart. And what does the Lord tell us? You're guilty. You're guilty. Now here's the last thing on the list. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And He shall lift you up. Somebody call this God's elevator. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. He will exalt you. I don't know where you are in life, but I know that pride is the one thing that can bring all of us down. It's pride that causes contention between God's people. If I had to describe pride, I would simply do as I've done before, say that toward others it's an attitude of superiority. We just Something about it, we just think we're a little bit better than they are. And then pride toward God is an attitude of self-sufficiency. I can get along okay without, without God. What fools we are when we think like that. Pride is, is the most common, foolish, destructive sin in all of the world. If we want what God wants us to have, it starts with us Humbling ourselves before God. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, that great verse that we so often use in regards to revival, if my people which are called by my name shall what? First thing on the list, if they will humble themselves and then pray. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Pride robs us. Of all of the good things God wants to give us. 
Pride doesn't just offend God. Pride also tears relationships apart. And it's pride that causes people who know that there's something in their heart, something in their life that's not quite right with God. And for the life of them, they don't want to admit it. They know it's there, but their pride stops them from, from confessing their, their sin. I hope and pray to God that not one person in our community can ever attend Lakeway Baptist Church and point a finger of accusation at some inconsistency, something in this church that causes them to say, well, not for me, just another bunch of hypocrites. And people sometimes can notice what seems to be the slightest things. Because believe it or not, there are folks out there looking for a good fight. Really. And if they can find any fault, they will. Whenever the Bible speaks about us living, the words, blamelessly before the Lord. To where no one can can point a finger against us of some indictable charge against us that we've done something wrong. And I'll tell you what, folks, if we will do as the Bible teaches and deal with the worldliness that's in our heart as individuals, you know what will happen? I believe with all of my heart, we'll see God keep doing what He's been doing week after week. Souls being saved, people being baptized, and people being added to the church. I don't know of any reason in all the world why that can't happen all the time. Now, I'm not God. I can't make it happen. But what you and I do as the children of God will have a big influence on others. And I hope and pray if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, and it might be because of a bad experience you had with maybe this church or some other church, Please, whatever you do, don't leave here today using that excuse. Don't leave here today putting yourself, your eternal soul, in jeopardy because of some failure on our part. Jesus won't ever fail you. Whenever He promises that He'll save you, He'll forgive your sins, He'll do exactly that. And you'll be amazed that after you trust Him, how all of those other things that have seemed to be so very important to you, seemingly now, (laughs) they're not important at all. Because now it's all about Jesus. Would you trust Him today? Let's all stand together. And Brother David, if you would come and our musicians, and we're going to sing a verse of invitation. And if you're here, and maybe, maybe... Maybe you don't want to talk to anyone. You just want to come and have a season of prayer, just you and the Lord, that He's put His finger on some sore spot in your heart, and you just want to come and do business with God. Would you do that while we, while we sing? Let's just sing a cappella, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.